The Start. On Demand. demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Monday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And today we're going to talk election stuff, but not just the upcoming civic election, but we're going to talk about next year's federal election as well, because there's a new poll that says that the celebrity... Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are only ahead by a nose of the no-name Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives. So we'll have a chat about that with David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. We're also going to talk about the Titanic 2. It is set to launch in 2022. Would you get on that ship as it makes its maiden voyage? Still on the subject of election stuff. In St. James, there's something interesting happening this year because it's incumbent versus incumbent. Kelly Keene, one of our favorite guests, personal consumer advocate for the Financial Planning Standards Council, and she joins us to find out what is your money personality? Are you the oversaver? Are you the spender? Or are you the oblivious? Or maybe you're a little bit of all of that. And finally, after watching The Haunting of Hill House last week on Netflix, I finished it. Loren is currently halfway through. We were surprised to learn that it's based on a book of the same name by Shirley Jackson, book written in the 50s. It's one of the most famous ghost stories of the 20th century. I've now learned this since watching the show and looking up the book. But we're going to have a chat with our friends at McNally Robinson about Other TV shows and movies that you maybe didn't know were adapted from books. And Chris Hall from McNally Robinson has put together a great list for you to enjoy. One year out from the federal election, which way are you leaning? Justin Trudeau's Liberals, Andrew Scheer's Conservatives, Jagmeet Singh's NDP, or other? Uh, question of the day uh, is brought to you by Mr. Furness. Uh, Loren McNabb's surprising poll result today. Yeah, they showed Justin Trudeau's Liberals and Andrew Scheer's Conservatives neck and neck, essentially. The Ipsos poll was done exclusively for Global News, and it has the Liberals at 36% support, Conservatives at 35%, and Jagmeet Singh and the NDP back at 20%. Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joins us from Ottawa to walk us through the numbers. Good morning, David. Morning, guys. Yeah, it is. Uh, the national picture is really tight, but there's all these regional races. That was also in the poll where there's a great variation. And sort of in central Canada, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, conservatives have a healthy lead over the liberals and the NDP are way back. So it the, the poll numbers nationally are 36 for the liberals, 36 percent support. 35% for Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives, and just 20% for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. But as they say, uh, in the middle of Canada, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, 47% of those polled uh, would vote Conservative, 25% for the Liberals, and 20% for the NDP. Manitoba is going to be a battleground over the next year, and all the, all the parties are already campaigning. There's ads right now running on TV and on the web from the Conservatives. They're already in campaign mode. And I can tell you the Conservatives have targeted, you know, I would say three, maybe four seats that they want to take in uh, in Winnipeg. And the Liberals actually are eyeing, uh, eyeing Nikki Ashton's seat up in uh, up in the north, the Churchill seat. So uh, lots of act- lots of interest in, in seeing the Manitoba board flipped. What does this say, Dave, to you about what may have changed in voters' mind? Is it, you know, just wanting to switch back? In some of those writings, I know it was a surprise that Liberals may have taken them in the first place four, three years ago. But what's it telling you about what voters opinions might be right now 
Well, and, and a lot of people say, what's the use of a poll a year away from things? Of course, these numbers are going to change, and that's the whole point of campaigns. But we asked some other questions about what issues are important to voters, and that's sort of interesting to watch the narrative unfold. And here's, here's the what we just say right off the top. What's your number one issue? Leave it wide open. It's not a multiple choice. Just what's your, what's your number one issue? And the top three that came back, health care was number one, then taxes, then the economy. And if we're trying to explain why the liberals with a global celebrity like Justin Trudeau leading them are so close right now to the conservatives with a guy, Andrew Scheer, who's the polls say 40 percent of Canadians have no idea who Andrew Scheer is. How is it that those two parties are close? Well, the liberals are not really talking about the top three issues, health care, taxes, the economy. Uh, they're not focused on those issues. They're focused on other things. It might be climate change. It might be a gender equality, indigenous reconciliation. Those three topics may be very important as well, but voters say that's not top of mind as I'm thinking about a government. Healthcare taxes, the economy are top of mind. So for the liberals, the challenge is you've got to talk about issues that voters have said, this is important to me, or convince voters that the issues they're already talking about ought to be the most important things in the world uh, to discuss. Conservatives have some things to do, too. I mean, taxes and conservatives, that they like to talk about that a lot. But if they want to expand their base, they might have to think about talking about some new stuff. I like I think a good issue for them would be housing, how to get millennials, the kids who are 18 to 34. I know I'm saying kids for a 34 year old, but whatever. <laughs> kids 18 to 34. Get them out of their parents' basement and into a home, and you get the vote not only of that 28-year-old, you get the vote of mom and dad who now have their basement back. <laughs> so that might be an issue to think about. David, we're seeing south of the, of the border. Uh, Donald Trump seeing unprecedented popularity numbers around 47% was the number I heard yesterday. And the economy is going strong in the United States. And so when, you're, when your paycheck is uh, dependable and you're feeling good about your own economic circumstances, it's, it's tough to want to change things. Things are slightly different here, but one thing we have in common is geography and where those votes lie in the United States dictated and won the election for Donald Trump. And, and that's certainly no different here in Canada. In fact, it's it's more so the case. So when we dissect those numbers and we, we look at Ontario and Quebec, uh, does that 36 or 35 percent uh, translate into a minority or majority government? Do, do, did we dig that deep? Uh, it's there's still a long way to go. And, but the point is, I think, is is the possibilities are there. It's not an automatic that the Trudeau gang is going to have the majority they had in 2015. It's it's up in the air. It could be a minority conservative. That is definitely a possibility, maybe less likely that it's a majority conservative. And I don't think anybody right now is thinking the NDP are going to form the government. But we'll see. And you mentioned Ontario, Quebec, and I'll throw in New Brunswick as well. All just had recent provincial elections. All had changes of government. But what was really interesting, and I want to single out New Brunswick in this one, you know, 15 years ago when New Brunswick had a provincial election, 95% of voters voted either liberal or conservative. And this time around, 30%, one-third, did not vote liberal or conservative. They voted for another party. And they voted green, and there was some extra green MPs in their legislature there, and they voted for a, a new sort of populist party, a, a kind of popular party in New Brunswick. That sort of, and we look at Quebec, it's a brand new party that's running things there, the Coalition uh, Avenue de Quebec, the CAC, brand new. Voters said to heck with the old line parties, the BQ, the PQ, and the Liberals. They chose something else. And obviously voters in Ontario wanted a big change. So when you think about the next year, you do have a volatile electorate in a lot, a lot of parts of the country that are saying, I'd like to consider a lot of different options. 
but what's kind of weird is, let's go back to the economy. Our economy is doing fine. We've got the lowest unemployment rate in 40 years. Um, by and large, things are going okay. That should be good for an incumbent. But uh, right now, things are a little dicey for the incumbent Trudeau Liberals. Uh, one one of the big issues Trudeau let, ran on last time and his Liberals was, of course, the legalization of cannabis, David. And I'm wondering what influence that may have had on voters back then. And now that it is legal, will that not get those same people out? Like, was that much of a driving force in the last election to get people to the polls? It's hard to say. We don't see much of a bump, though, certainly in any recent polls, ours included, you know, as cannabis becomes legal. So I guess people have already given them credit if they were going to get it. If you think that the cannabis vote was a young person's vote, I don't necessarily buy that. I think the boomers also like the idea of going back to those good old days in the 60s and having a a joint uh, if they'd like. But nonetheless, let's assume it's the millennial vote. This is the group of people I mentioned, 18 to 34. Those millennials had their biggest voter turnout ever in 2015. Normally, the voter turnout among people at the lower end of the age spectrum for voters is around 35, 38 percent. It was at 55 percent in 2015. It was huge. And they most voted for Trudeau. That's how he won his majority. Now, that group is also very unreliable in terms of showing up at the polls. I really didn't see them much in Ontario. Didn't see them a whole lot in Quebec. Will they show up in 2019? If they do, that's good for the Trudeau Liberals. If they do not, then we have a whole new ballgame. Then it's the boomers who are tend to lean more conservative. The older you get, the more likely you're going to vote conservative. So that demographic uh, issue is a big one going forward. And you know what? The next election, the 2019 election, it's the first time ever that the millennials will be the single biggest voting block. It's been the boomers for most of my life, not any longer. The boomers are the second biggest. And now the millennials, if they want to take control of our federal politics, they got the biggest uh, voting block, and, uh, but they have to show up and vote. David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent, joining us live on the start. Thank you so much, David. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks. Once again, question of the day at cjob.com. One year out from the federal election, which way are you leaning? And so far, the early vote at cjob.com. Andrew Shears, Conservatives at 80%. Justin Trudeau's Liberals at 20 You can also vote for Jagmeet Singh's NDP or other. Question of the day brought to you by Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness at 204-832-6243. It's been 84 years, and I can still smell the fresh paint. The china had never been used. The sheets had never been slept in. Titanic was called the ship of dreams. And it was, it really was. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb on 680 CJOB alongside Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, Jeff Fortier. The headline, New Titanic to Begin Voyage in 2022. This is from Australian businessman Clive Palmer, who's been talking about creating a Titanic replica for years now. He's the chairman of Blue Star Line. And now it looks like it's set to launch in 2022 out of Dubai. So we're asking the question, would you get on a replica of the Titanic? And hear this song in your head everywhere (laughs) you go. I can just picture that old couple holding each other's hands and the mom reading the story to her son. No. I was just picturing McNabb up on the hull of the ship. (laughs) No. Never. Leonardo DiCaprio. Is Leo going? Oh. 
I'm, I'm flying, oh, here it comes. She's waffling. Ah, yeah. I was hoping to avoid, uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah I had to go there. <laughs> yeah. the, the best quote is uh, George on Seinfeld's quote about the movie goes, So that old lady, she's just a liar, right? <laughs> <laughs> the way oh. things are so commercialized these days, you know how when you go on a roller coaster, they have all the cameras to capture your reaction at a certain part? Do you not imagine, like, it's about $3,000 to get your picture taken at the front of that ship? They'll have a camera there, yeah. and you'll have to sign your life away in order oh, to yeah. get a picture in that pose. <laughs> they might even have, you know... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio lookalike out, there yeah. or something like that. But yeah, this doesn't this seem a little, I think it'd be weird. I wouldn't go on it. Not even close. And you've been on cruises. I've been on cruises in the Caribbean and you can almost always see some sort of shoreline or if not that other boats around you. There's other cruise ships sort of on the same channel or wherever they go. Uh, you can see the lights at night, but you can look out across the ocean and the vastness is overwhelming. And I, I'll, I'll stand there and I think, wow, if I fell off this boat, I'm just dead. There's yeah. no rescuing a person that falls off a cruise ship. So, And that's, you know... In warmer waters with some land maybe in sight or other ships. Across the Atlantic, not on your life. No way. And not not just not on top of the fact that it's the Titanic. That, too. that part doesn't even bother me. Just any transatlantic thing I would oh, never get on. Oh, it bugs me that it would be the I feel like you're just tempting fate. I mean, it sunk. And, and it's I, smaller than most cruise ships, the old Titanic. So. And didn't have, are they replicating the number of lifeboats? Is that the same just captain? To, just to keep things real. You oh, still by the have way, a 10% only chance? one quarter of you will survive. I mean, I don't want to laugh about it even. It feels, I feel like even laughing about it. What, are the, what is the statute of limitations in terms it's of? It's been over 100 years. 100 and, yeah, 106 uh, well, years. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be, have the same interiors and cabin layout as the original vessel while in Integrating modern safety procedures, oh. navigation methods, and 21st sec- century technology to produce the highest levels of luxurious comfort. Curious to know if that means it's going to be the same class system as well as the first oh, one. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to have what do they call it? Steerage. That's right. Yeah. All, if all we could afford was a steerage ticket, what's the point? <laughs> can, I, can I take your spot for a second when I throw to Kelly here? Yeah. Kelly, you turned down a chance to go uh. on the original, the, the, oh. the first sailing of the Titanic. Uh-huh. So here's your opportunity. To uh, yeah. you know, make, make I also, that right. I also missed out on the Hindenburg too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, now McNabb, would you get on a cruise? No. at all. No, and I, I was I was telling you guys earlier this morning. My sister has been talking about. I heard what, it all the way over on my end of the office. <laughs> I just so she's been asking us, why don't we do this Disney cruise with the kids? You can get on the you get on the ship. Somebody watches your kids. We can go have our juice by the pool. You know that kind of thing. And no, I feel like I can't in the middle of the ocean and it's you use the word overwhelming like just the idea of not seeing the other side of something i um, don't appreciate that at well, all don texted and he said uh, that you know hang on a second i worked in the navy for six years nothing as awesome as the night sky in the middle of the ocean and i was a little curious to know how i would find it being out in the middle of the the ocean the vastness of the ocean uh, I didn't like, find it scary at all. I found it maybe the most relaxing thing I've ever seen, particularly at night. It's just calm and yeah. What about no, even knowing rolling, that it was like the nausea that comes. Uh, well, the ship is so big; yeah. it's it, it's hard to really. If, to really yeah, it has to be pretty bad before you feel it. Well, so. I took one of the world. I think it's the world's largest ferry, or one of them, from Ireland to Wales about a decade ago, and I was nauseous the entire time. So I just picture myself on this romantic <laughs> cruise ship, throwing up nonstop, like. <laughs> 
Yeah. Because yeah, it was almost like a gentle rocking when you were in bed. Just you, you oh. feel this slight kind it's of It's good movement. for falling asleep. Yeah. yeah. But it was, as the ferry that, because there was one point, one of the excursions that we went on, we had to board a ferry rather than a dock. And that was troubling like it was that boat was rocky oh like trying. when you go into it yeah, uh, yeah. To going ashore like yeah. uh, in Cabo San Lucas they don't have a deep sea port so whenever they dock they they kind of anchor in the bay and then they shuttle everyone into uh into Cabo for the day it's uh yeah that, that's a little unnerving would you do it Cal I wouldn't uh, I mean I'm not a cruiser I just I need to have more things to do and different things to see. But I certainly wouldn't be opposed to getting on the ship. I, I'm a fatalist. When the big guy wants you, the, the big guy wants you. So it doesn't matter whether you're on land or on sea, you know. But it's, I, I wouldn't go on there if they said, yeah, the same thing's going to happen that happened with the original Titanic. But no, just to go on there and see what it was like. I was working. I was working in water, like because you know you only empty the pool so much in the in the winter, and so I was doing a couple of things in the pool yesterday, and my hand was in the water for about nine seconds, and I'm thinking to myself, how would you ever? survive in water yeah. that's three or four degrees. I couldn't even manipulate my fingers within about 10 seconds. And I'm think I thought to myself, oh my God, how yeah. would you ever survive that kind of water? Be horrifying. You would, you would stop functioning properly in a matter of seconds. Yeah, it's uh, scary. We're just thinking about that scene in Titanic. Jeff, how many times have you seen that film now, Titanic? Oh, I don't know. A dozen, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I used to hate it, but now I love it. So Why? I don't know. It just grew on me after a while. It was because did. of Billy Zane, wasn't it? Probably. The actor Billy Zane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the way... Real man makes his own luck, you know. Jack. <laughs> Jack. would you get on Titanic 2? I absolutely would. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah? Fun? Oh, yeah. yeah, why not? It would be he cool He plays to the accordion in steerage. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, they had that scene where uh, she goes downstairs and it's, you know, like a bit more of a pub and she does the dancing and all that kind of stuff, like a little Irish... Type yeah. thing that would be fun. Like, if they're, are they recreating some moments beyond the, the singing? Yeah, I mean, you're like you're more likely to get norovirus or something on Titanic two than you are of of uh, hitting an iceberg and having it sink again. Is it going to go the same route? Yep. Well, it's going to launch from uh, its first. Its maiden voyage is set to be from Dubai, but yeah, that's mm. the idea. That it's see, they're go not that confident. Eventually, it <laughs> says it'll be going weekly from England to New York. Yeah, yeah. I think. Can, can you do that in one week? Oh yeah. I would have thought that would take yeah. like 15 days just no, to cross the ocean. I think it's four or, five, four or five days now. Loren, on the subject of the civic election, uh, something very interesting and in happening in one, at least one of our Winnipeg wards. Yeah, it's a rarity too. There are two councillors seeking re-election. And if that sounds confusing. In the same ward? In the same ward. Uh, how's that happen? So <laughs> there has been a boundary change uh, in St. Charles, where Sean Dobson is the councillor. St. Charles as a ward no longer exists. And voters there have been divided between the Charleswood Tuxedo Ward and the St. James Ward, where Scott Gillingham is the current councillor. 
So if you're following, that means there are two incumbents now going head to head in St. James on Wednesday. Can we uh, give credit at least to these two candidates for not getting into the gerrymandering <laughs> fiascos that we've seen in the United States where they redraw boundaries in order to make sure that the incumbent is reelected? So thumbs up to uh, both Mr. 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 Dobson and Gillingham for well, that. It's interesting, too, for them, because depending on how you look at the numbers, it might seem like more of the original St. James voters are in the the new St. James ward, if you will. And I put that in quotes. And so, you know, someone might feel like they've been kind of been left out. But if you're driving down the streets in St. James, you can see these lawn signs that will say reelect Scott Gillingham or reelect Sean Dobson. <laughs> so here's Dobson now on the impact that's having on voters. I'm hearing a tremendous amount of confusion, um, mostly out in Scott's ward. But I did send a flyer out in the spring to explain to everybody that there was ward boundaries. Um, the ward boundary changed. So I, I did go into a little bit of detail. So the people on my side of the ward at least had a, a better understanding that there was a ward boundary change. But on Scott's side, they had no idea. Now, there is some folks scratching their heads, but Scott Gillingham says for the most part, he believes voters are understanding what's happening. It's been a little bit of confusion, but by and large, most people understand that there has been a change to the ward boundaries, and they understand that uh, now um, the entire uh, area is, is the St. James Ward. So most people have been, have been following along, and uh, they realize that uh, there is a new ward now. So for the issues, uh, Dobson says he's hearing two things repeatedly come up at the doors. Transparency at City Hall. Get our uh, potholes fixed, as in get a regular program. Because currently we can have a pothole sitting on a street, yeah, fairly good-sized one. It'll sit there for over a year, and that's just not acceptable. Now, since Dobson was elected in 2014, he actually was never named to the mayor's inner circle, while Gillingham has sat on the executive policy committee. So you heard him mention there the issue of transparency. And you've heard actually a few councillors and past and even um, mayoral candidate Makaluk talk about the idea that maybe the system needs to change. Could it change? Does the charter allow it to change? Um, because if, as far as some are concerned, it doesn't allow for a fair exchange of ideas Dobson is one of them. Here's what Gillingham had to say about that subject. And I quite frankly think that, you know, a lot of uh, the residents just want us to, you know, get at the business of, of building the city, preparing the roads and focus on, you know, on, um, on working on behalf of the residents. So while the story is really a tale of two incumbents in St. James, there is a third candidate that I want to mention. Kurt Morton, 23 years old, by the way, is hoping he rises up the middle, but admits it's hard going up against two well-known names. Uh, it's quite difficult. Uh, a lot of people have uh, told me that the city didn't really uh, tell them what was going on. Um, I've had a few people uh, email me to request signs uh, out in Westwood. And uh, I'm the one who has to break the news to them that actually, sorry, uh, you guys are now part of a different word. That's interesting, and it makes it difficult, I know. For you, what's your number one priority if elected? Uh, if elected, my priority is to make sure that City Council takes a very long-term approach to uh, planning, making sure that we look past just a single four-year election cycle and make sure that we're setting the city up for success for the future. Yeah. That sounds reasonable. Yeah, he sounds like a reasonable guy. I just got off the phone with him a few minutes ago, and, you know, he's 23, uh, and so you have to admire what he's doing there. And I and I do feel for both the incumbents in St. James. You know, you usually, odds go in the incumbents' favor 
in any election. And in this circumstance, you have two of them going head to head. And actually also in, in another uh, ward, you have not two incumbents, but you have two well-known names, Gar Steeks, who's a former councillor, and John Orlico uh, going up against each other in River Heights. And so, you know, the name means something, but it's certainly confusing. You can appreciate that confusion in St. James. I always wonder how much of that is a default as an, uh, as a voter. When you go into the booth and Maybe you haven't paid attention to the school trustee battle, but you go, geez, I, I recognize that name. And the most likely reason you recognize it is because that's an incumbent. And so you make the check mark and name recognition goes a long way. And I would suggest that's why candidates spell, spend all this money on advertising and on lawn signs, because name recognition is a key factor in people making a decision. The school trustee category, that's one that I've always wondered is this one that should be left into the left to the public to decide upon that? Because I, I'd be willing to bet more often than not, people have no idea who any of the trustees are. And I'm, I'm, I'll fully admit I'm guilty of that. In the past, when I was a younger lad, I just would vote for the person with the funniest name. Or, or who come? Like, does it make a difference when they come to your door? Because. Huge difference. Uh, because I, so, for example, in my area, a school trustee came and knocked on the door. She's the only one that's come by. I've got her uh, name and her card sitting by the, the desk, and I'll probably just bring that with me because I haven't heard from anyone else, right? And, and that's not really a good way to vote. It doesn't mean that person has the best ideas, but I, I gen, and that category is hard. Funny, it's like buying a bottle of wine. You go with the, the funny name or the interesting label. Yeah, that's right. You There's know. not a lot of di- difference. I no. think that's a great analogy. Yeah. And at least you know where this person stands. You don't know where the other candidates stand. At least you've had a face-to-face with this this well, person. And I often just think they made the effort too, right? I might have oh, missed sure. all the other candidates possible that came to my door in the yeah, last eight weeks. leaving a little note. Sorry and maybe we they missed did, you. But this one came. We chatted for two quick minutes. We talked about some concerns within the education system and she so there you go did that you was, ask what her favorite wine was did no, it get that I far, gone that far. <laughs> no no mackling when it comes to your money personality would you call yourself the oversaver the spender or the oblivious? I would suggest that there's only one that definitely does not apply. <laughs> that would be the oversaver. There's no question about that. Yeah, I, I uh, would would also count myself as a spender and oblivious. Kelly Keene is here. The reason why we're asking that is because Kelly Keene, kellykeene.com, the website. She is an award-winning author, a personal finance educator, a media personality, and consumer advocate for the Financial Planning Standards Council. Those are the Coles notes of her uh, of her synopsis on her website. Kelly, I don't have... If we if I read off all of your accomplishments, uh, that'd be the end of the segment. Uh, you guys are always too kind to me. Good morning. Happy Monday. Good morning, Kelly. Thanks for making some time for us today. So why are you asking these questions about your money personality and why do you think it's important that we take stock and figure out where we fit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, number one, money is so personal and we don't ever take stock. We don't 
look at, um, you know, where do we fall in and where, where is that a good thing where you can, you know, check a big box off? Uh, and where, where do you need to kind of like help yourself out depending on your personality? Now, where this is really important is also with your spouse, with your partner, um, maybe with your adult kids, because if you don't know where you sit, uh, this is where it creates a lot of fights. And here's something that's so easy for your listeners to do is ask yourself, ask your partner just one question. If you could sum down, what does money mean to you? Now, this is tough. I'll give you a couple hints. It might be freedom. It might be security. It might be safety. And when you really drill down to what money means to you, oftentimes that can be a real uh, clue, an eye-opener, because the person that thinks money is freedom, they probably like spending a lot of it. The person that thinks money is safety, they probably like saving a lot of it. So, I mean, just knowing where you sit, it, it, it can help so much. The oblivious. How, what would you describe or how would you describe somebody who fits into the category known as the oblivious? Now, so many people do, and we do it different parts in our life. Like uh, someone might be great with their money, and then let's say all of a sudden they have a job loss, and now money's tight or it's non-existent. And the oblivious person is not opening up their bills. They're not maybe looking at what are they actually paying for a credit card interest rate. Uh, They don't realize, let's say, that if they miss one payment – on their their credit card or they're just late by a couple of days that now this interest rate of maybe 18% skyrockets up to 29% because of that one missed payment. So the oblivious person is going to get worse and worse, um, you know, get more further in debt, face a lot of fees, over limit fees, things of that sort. So the big red flag there is if, if you've got debt screaming at you, we've talked about this before, you've got to see someone like a nonprofit credit counselor. If you're just oblivious about your financial life, you don't have a financial plan, you don't have a retirement plan, you don't know if you should have mortgage insurance, whatever, this is when you need to sit down with someone like a certified financial planner. So nothing wrong with any of these categories, and you can be, as you said at the top of this, lots of them, um, but you need to know, like, if you're the overspender like me, that's mine, put my hand up, uh, then you need nudges like automatic savings programs where it's coming right off of your check, right out of your bank account. Uh, knowing, knowing where you sit um, certainly helps to protect yourself as well. So Kelly, can you give us some advice? Like if you're in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or other sort of relationship where maybe you haven't had this discussion yet, would it make sense for me to figure out who I am first and then approach my partner and say, you know what, we need to have this discussion or should we discover this together? What do you think about that? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's tough because we're not, ta- we're not taught how to do this ourselves, like you said, Greg, and then how do you have this conversation with your spouse or your kids? So if you, if you get a little fun with it, don't make it serious, right? Just be like, hey, I listened to this interview, and they were talking about money personalities. You could ask your spouse. You could say, what do you think I am? Do you think, I, do you think I'm a little bit frugal? Do you think that, you know, and then kind of make it a little cheeky and, and, and then ask the person, don't tell them what you think they are. This is where it's going to get in a fight. <laughs> if you tell them that they're cheap or that they're an over, overspender or, or that they're oblivious, but really just honestly kind of have the conversation and yeah, uh, come to it together, make it a date night, make it fun, have the conversation. Now this is where it can be a little tough is often, not always, 
But often uh, there is one person that's really stepping up to the plate in the relationship financially. They might not be the breadwinner, uh, but they're the ones paying the bills and looking after everything, and they might be taking on all the stress. So if this is the very first time you're ever having a money conversation, tread lightly, um, be gentle, realize that, that you might have to have a few conversations to really get on the same page, but it's so important because unfortunately, I hear a lot, and certainly a lot of the, the, the folks out there that give financial advice, um, you know, a lot of fights that couples have, in fact, actually are about money or a lack thereof. So um, talking about it is a first step. It's so incredibly important. Well, yeah, and I, some of my buddies use the term, yeah, I'm not going to die on that hill. And when it comes to having that discussion about finances, if you are in a relationship where one person is maybe less responsible than the other, how do you have that conversation without being prepared to die on that hill in that moment? Yeah, exactly. And you don't want to. And you don't want to go back and you don't want to be accusatory like anything else in a relationship. So you want to keep it positive, keep it moving forward. And here's what you do is you say, look, um, maybe, you know, uh, whatever uh, amount coming in, why don't we look at creating a budget for the future, creating uh, accounts where we actually save up for things like, hey, what is it that you want to save up for? And that's a great conversation, too. What are your goals as a couple, how many vacations do you want to take? Uh, how much would you like to have for spending on the boat or clothes or whatever it is? And take the judgment away and start to set the rules up to win. So that could be a budget that you're saving up for. It could be separate accounts where you say, okay, um, why don't we figure out what is an account that both of you get to have that a percentage of the income, uh, the household income goes into, and you get to spend that freely and, 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 and keeping it really positive, but making sure that if there is overspending, that um, there's, there's money uh, that's being saved up for it, that's not just going onto a credit card or something of that sort. If that is what's going on, and there is one person that's actually getting into financial trouble, this, guys, is maybe where um, that person really needs to reach out for help, and they need that third-party person like that nonprofit credit counselor or the certified financial planner or, or an accountant or something like that to kind of help them have those delicate conversations to curb that spending in because, uh, I, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're in a couple and, and one person might be out of control, uh, it, it is important that, um, that you get help for that person. Kellykeen.com is the website. Kelly, thank you so much, as always, for the time. We appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks so much. Have a great Monday. Kelly Keene is a consumer advocate for the Financial Planning Standards Council. She's an award-winning author, media personality, and so much more. Macklin McGarry McNabb on 680 CJ will be very excited about our next conversation. But before we get into that and introduce our guest, just want to quickly revisit conversation we had with Jeff Courier off the top because he came in here wearing his L.A. Rams hat and he jokingly refers to them as the goats. There's a little bit of an inside joke there. And he says that's not a particularly menacing name. So I just did a search. I said sports team goats. And I found a team with, with a pretty cool logo, actually. It's, a, it's an angry goat with a <laughs> baseball bat that has been quite promptly chewed up. In, and it's the Hartford Yard Goats. They're a minor league baseball team in Hartford. They play in the Eastern League. Uh, they're the AA affiliate of the Rockies, the Colorado Rockies. And the team was founded in 2016 when the New Britain Rock Cats 
relocated to Hartford. I just love all the minor league teams. What if it was a mountain goat? That, uh, that's kind of cool. I wouldn't want to get hit by a by a goat. Yeah. Are you kidding? A yard goat's not as menacing as a mountain goat, but those things are cool. Yeah, I was kind of surprised they added that yard yeah. caveat. Well, they want to be clear to that we're not going for anything cool here. <laughs> well, isn't we're it just still... going for your average yard goat? Well, aren't you? When you go deep, isn't it a way to say he's gone yard? That, absolutely, it is. There you go. Oh, There's the double meaning. There you go. Uh, see, what's Leave your team? To well, whenever you have the conversation about the strangest. Sport team names. I always go to the Central Hockey League and uh, Macon, Georgia. They had a team for, oh, I guess it was about 16 years or so. They disbanded in 2001. The Macon Whoopie. <laughs> I did not see that, that coming. Great, yeah. I was oh, like, wow, great. that's just brilliant. Like, could you imagine being sitting around the the breakfast table or the meeting table and go, I've got it. I've got it, and everybody breaking out into laughter, and the and the business plan and the marketing plan would just take care of itself after yeah, that. That's genius. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I might have to look into getting a hat oh, for making Whoopi. In the meantime, last week we had a conversation about a new net show on Netflix, and I reviewed it. A show called The Haunting of Hill House. Here's a clip from that. Well, I can't stand it anymore, and I I have to die. Time on a silver table. It's my jaw wired shut. Would you wake us up from a dream like that? Creepy show, pretty scary stuff. Just to be clear, I'm not saying it's not scary. I just wanted it to be scarier as it approached its climax. But one of the things that I learned, and I recognize the name of the author, because it says right in the title credits, based on the book by Shirley Jackson. I had to do some Googling after to refresh my memory. Shirley Jackson, I knew her as the author of the short story, The Lottery, but she also wrote the book, the novel on which the show is based, The Haunting of Hill House, which has been adapted into two feature films known simply as The Haunting. And the book is hailed as one of the greatest ghost stories of the 20th century. So we reached out to our friend Chris Hall, co-owner of McNally Robinson Booksellers, and said, hey, uh, do you got any ideas for other books that have been adapted into TV shows or movies, ones that people might not know were adapted from books. And he rallied his troops, his staff, and they came back to us with a list of well over 100 titles. So we we picked five, and Chris has picked five, and we're going to try to plow through them all. Chris, first of all, good morning, and thanks for coming to see us again. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So The Haunting of Hill House, if somebody wants to... Read the book after they watch the show. Is that one that we can go pick up at your store? Uh, yeah, that's a, a staple of our Halloween uh, stock. So every uh, every October we would bring in extra copies. So it's it was hard for us to come up with what would be surprising because of course we we're immersed in the book side. <laughs> so, yeah. so we were aware about of that reading one. Reading like a reading a horror book. Mm. I've never. Do you, is the effect the same for people? It, well, it is for me. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, I'm like my daughter. I can't read the scary books at night. I have to read them in the morning. Yeah, I, I've, read, I've read a handful of scary books, and they are they they're more intense than than watching it on screen because well, your imagination the, just yeah. goes. I, I, I guess, yeah. Well, and I, it takes I, I read slow, so it takes so long. It takes long to get through the really scary stuff. So I'm just kind of trapped in this fear for a long time. I remember reading Dracula for the first time, and. I, Literally having to press pause. <laughs> just, really? I couldn't read more. <laughs> like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, yeah, it's got some intense scenes in it. 
So, uh, what have you got there? What, what, what you've, you brought a box full of books, so let's uh, start with the first one you've got in your list there. All right, sure. Um, we've got, uh, um, well, as you said, we had a ton to choose from. So, whether these are surprises or not, I'm not sure. But uh, why don't we start with, uh, with a movie that's just out, I think, in the last couple of weeks, uh, The Sisters Brothers. Uh, that's been uh, one of the the great uh, Canadian literary stories uh, since it came out, uh, I think, in 2011. Um, it was on the Giller list. It was on the, the Governor General's list, and uh, Patrick Dewitt is the uh, the author. And uh, it is uh, it is quite an amazing book, actually. It it the tone of the book is the uh, is the star. It uh, it it's a western in some some senses, but it hits this tone of absurdity but seriousness, comic but not like laugh out loud, but just that kind of dark humor, uncomfortable humor. I, I think of the Coen Brothers movies when I'm when I, when I read the uh, Sisters Brothers. So it's a story about uh, two gunslinging hitmen, um, Eli and Charlie Sisters. So their last name is Sisters, which explains the title. And uh, and the movie's just out. Uh, John C. Riley and uh, Joaquin Phoenix, I think, play the yep. play the brothers. And uh, apparently, the movie's very good. Patrick Dewitt actually is going to be in our store tonight, uh, as a matter of fact. So uh, wow, oh, yeah, well, that's absolutely, cool. yeah, that's good timing uh, all around for. Him. What time is that? Seven o'clock at the big store in Grant Park. Yeah, I remember when I first saw the trailer for that. I thought Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley. That would be really interesting to see. And I had no idea that it was a, based on a book. Never mind by a Canadian author. So mm-hmm. that's, yeah, it's a good story. That's tremendous. What's next? Well, it struck me um, when we made this list how many of these books uh, booksellers knew about years ago. So somehow, I'm not going to say that we caused this, but collectively we are. We just have our finger on the pulse, I guess. And so this is one, uh, it's called My My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. And this has been a phenomenon. Uh, we've sold hundreds of copies of uh, of the book, My Brilliant Friend. And uh, it's a four-part series now and uh, uh, called The Neapolitan Quartet. It's set in Naples in 1950, uh, about two young girls who uh, are great friends. And, they, and over the course of the four books, they grow older. And it's just very honest and very compelling, very real. Uh, the setting was unlike any. I'd never read a book set in 1950s Naples, so it was, even the setting was was interesting, and uh, and so yeah, it's it's a little bit under the radar. I don't read about this title. I don't I don't see it, you know, in in uh, media as it were, and uh, and yet we sell it. I think word of mouth. Uh, and so is that because of the film? Like, are people coming to you, or that? No, just, the film isn't even out yet. Oh, it's an HBO series, oh. and it's coming. I think maybe next month, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just so looking for the imminent, details but, on that. Uh, so the buzz of that somehow is is mm-hmm. creating the need to get the book. Yeah. So somehow the people that I think John C. Riley picked up the rights to Sisters Brothers, and so I think these producers or actors or whoever buys rights to these books uh, reads them for some reason. The same reason why we push them and. Uh, like I'm going to do the sports analogy here uh, real quick here. Like Corey Kosky uh, from Enola, Manitoba goes to play in Major League Baseball. And now all of a sudden, you know, Major League Team Scout Manitoba and the Prairie's looking mm-hmm. because this, you know, everybody's looking for that next place. Yep. So I wonder if movie makers are looking at Canadian authors now, maybe with the, on the strength of the hands made, Handmaid's Tale or, or sure. similar, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. And I, I think, uh, in, in at a certain level, storytelling is storytelling, and so um, I would argue the best stories are in books. Uh, um, I, uh, I'm a fan of saying that the book is always better than the movie, um, but uh, uh, but I think there's reasons for that, and I think the uh, the stories, some of the best stories, are contained in books. So so why if you're a 
filmmaker wouldn't you go to to books for uh, some source material? My brilliant friend debuts Sunday, November 18th on HBO, and there will be a second episode airing the next day. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.